Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? Um, I feel pretty good. I feel like I am being pursued by a pack of wolves. How okay. are you feeling? That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling sort of similar, different. I've, uh, I feel like burnt toast today, just because it's uh, daylight savings time, but I don't feel like I got that extra hour of sleep yet. Mm. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a daylight savings moment today because I woke up today and just immediately started working on some home office type stuff. And then I was like, I got a few tasks done. And I was like, what time is it? And it was like 9 a.m. And I was like, whoa, I'm like <laughs> really on top of my shit today. <laughs> yeah. Getting that extra hour. Uh, I feel like I'm pursued by wolves because literally right. I just got home. I pulled into, you know. I pulled into the driveway, walked upstairs, and there were these two massive, untagged husky dogs behind me. They didn't have collars on, and it was really fucking scary. <laughs> I basically just walked up my steps, and I was like, I hope none of, neither of them lunges at me and kills me before the podcast. <laughs> so your neighbors got some random huskies i don't know i guess so i mean i don't know i hope it's somebody's sem i mean they seemed relatively relaxed but it was still a uh, a messed up image <laughs> nice um okay don't go outside for a bit um, yeah exactly so so for this week i set something up i thought we could do like i like to do thought experiments you know mm-hmm. and this one it's, I don't know. I call it, it's a game. I just like to call it fancy thought experiment. But it's around the idea of fan fiction. Okay. You know, yep. fan, fan fiction is a thought experiment in itself, so it's kind of fitting. And uh, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, this is fan fiction is just a genre that's basically centered around copyright infringement. Right. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's um, <laughs> it's when people like write stories using already established characters, you know, established intellectual property, and then make it their own. Maybe most popular... What do you think is the biggest, like, fan fiction subject? It's probably Harry Potter, right? They do, like, maybe... Nowadays, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, um... You know, it's... It's like that, you know, you, you take Harry Potter and you make your own sequel, or you make your own prequel, or, you know put them into uh iron chef. situations <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, oh harry potter iron chef that's that'd be a good one yeah you know you just make combine things make it into something else or you know even just take your spin on something like uh or you know there's, there's a long history of it too like i think from uh what i've read uh the three musketeers by Alexander Dumas, like that was basically fan fiction. Like he borrowed a book from the library that was about uh, some guy, some guy named D'Artagnan or whatever, and made the Three Musketeers from it. Really? Yeah. I was just, I, just, I was literally just about to say, I wonder if there's like a like we'll have some famous Gen Z writer or something that comes out of you know like their first essays were full length Harry Potter fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their first yeah. novels. I'm sure that that's coming. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think this is, I think fan fiction is something it's, you know, started to gain steam more in the modern age with, I think, Star Trek fans in the late 60s. They would make, you know, fanzines and write stories and stuff. And since the dawn of the Internet's just blown up into, yeah, like Harry Potter, whatever's popular, I'm sure there's a lot of Marvel stuff and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. So, uh you know, I read an article that talked kind of about the merits of fan fiction as a practice, and it made some good points, like how the fan fiction, it's kind of like a communal thing. Uh, that's how it is exists kind of nowadays. It's, um, you know, there's it's like a free source of feedback for aspiring authors because, you know, they people who participate in these fan fiction sites or whatever groups, they you know, share their work with each other and get feedback and, you know, that sort of loop. And uh, I've got a quote here from the Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemison, who says that fan fiction tends to have a built-in hook because it's written in a world that you're you're a fan of. You're predisposed to like it. You have to find a way to make it not just the world that people are tuning in to read, so they're interested in your story, hmm. which is cool. Right. It's sort of like you're gaining the audience. You're piggybacking on somebody who has already 
you know, engage this group of people. And then it's sort of like a what if, and if you can prove yourself, then you can, then that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so, so the game I wanted to play today or the thought experiment is to pretty much, uh, what I wanted to do is just like take the main character or, you know, a few characters or the whole cast of characters from one book or from other source of media and then fan fiction style, throw them into the plot or setting of another book. You know, how would they how would they make out? Are they suddenly and I found this metaphor that I just liked. So I'm just going to drive into the ground. Are they a fish out of water? Are they uh, still in water? Just different <laughs> water? You know, maybe they're suddenly the prey when they used to be the predator or mm-hmm. they're they become an invasive species and wreak havoc on the original story. Uh, you know, what happens? So I don't know if you want to kick it off. Do you think of something? Yeah, I mean, when you originally brought this kind of up to me, my mind immediately went to uh, various, like, ensemble casts in fantasy novels. So what immediately came to mind is uh, there's the Lord of the Rings, and then if you threw them, every every character, what would be, like, their equivalence in the plot of Mario Puzo's The Godfather? <laughs> like who would be who you know like yeah um and I, I honestly i'm more familiar i think just like everyone is more familiar with the films than the books but i'm sure that they there are like sort of equivalent characters you know like don corleone like is that gandalf or is it sauron or is it Saruman? <laughs> and that's interesting i thought you were taking it i thought you were gonna say um Lord of the Rings characters in Game of Thrones. But I, I like this spin with the Godfather. Yeah, well, Lord of the I Rings... Would... I don't think the Lord of the Rings characters would survive Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like, the world of Game of Thrones is so much more cynical. Like, you know, Frodo would not, like, you know... Yeah, there, I don't think... there'd be, like, a, a row of... Uh, the ring would be more of a relay race kind yeah. of thing, where that's handed off. I think. Because people keep dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Sam, think... Sam actually drowns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would just... The only one I think I know would be... Boromir would be Fredo. I don't know if that makes sense, but maybe... Yeah, I think so, yeah. So famously the brother Fredo and the godfather who dies, Boromir. That kind of that lines up. Yeah, I think that does line up because Fredo has like his like the reason why he's being killed, even though it's not enough of a reason to be killed. It's sort of you know he he has some transgressions just like Boromir. Okay, that worked better than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, I got one here. Take all of the characters from the stand, like however many there are. Like mm-hmm. you know, we 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 talk to or we hear from maybe fifty, but there's you know thousands or whatever hundreds um take all the characters from the stand put them into the lord of the flies throw them on that island Ooh. <laughs> because this is a you know the stand is a huge novel thousand page whatever it would shorten it significantly because the whole reason why the stand is so long is because you've got this whole build-up of everyone assembling and right, traveling we, yeah, yeah. Like, basically across all of america yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're finding each other. They're determining who's on the good side and who's on the bad side. And if you throw them onto this island right from the start, you've basically yeah. got Battle Royale. <laughs> and, yeah, it'd be a little bit of a fast forward there. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it made me think of uh, Fortnite video game because you're kind of shrinking the playing field right. to like influence more firefights or whatever. <laughs> So but you, you have a good point. What if they were also in the... Have you read the book Battle Royale or have you seen the movie? I've seen the movie. The book is so good. If you have a chance to read the book, it's actually super addicting. I Yeah, I've wanted to read the book. I only saw the movie recently. I know like it was one of those movies when we were like teenagers that's like, oh man, this is like the mm-hmm. goriest, craziest thing ever. I bought So I bought this new TV and... 
it has like free channels on it or whatever. And that's the first, that's like the first thing I watched on the TV was battle Royale happened to be on TV. And I was like, well, how are they showing this? It's so brutal. <laughs> I think those types of rules have slightly changed. Like since we were younger, like we've completely tuned out of television. And then I think you can all of a sudden you can like hear like swears and stuff on TV. Yeah. I, I think, I think some things have changed. That's what it seemed like. Yeah. Well, whatever. Uh, yeah. TV is dead. Uh, so my ne- my next one was um, again like sort of like an equivalent thing, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but mine was a crossover between Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, there's probably fan fiction out there that would turn Harry Potter into as mature of of game of thrones you know everybody having <laughs> sex with each other everybody dying everybody you know who is is harry john snow or is you know you know who's who i don't i don't know but i'm pretty sure that's you know bound for success because you've got like like that quote you know you hook right. people who already have an interest you've got, you've got half the world <laughs> you've got two hooks like basically, like like imagine just a giant press release that's like J.K. Rowling and George R.R. R. Martin have decided to combine their. <laughs> I don't even think people would go for that. Like, at a certain point, what what uh, at a certain point, an author or a creator makes their world, and then it becomes sort of owned by the fans, like Star Wars or Star Trek or anything. It's like you know, mm-hmm. like even like George Lucas even like comes out with you know Star Wars movies and stuff that he's involved in, and people like pick and choose what they decide is like the yeah. real universe you know my canon is different yeah. <laughs> nice um all right i got one here take take don quixote mm-hmm. and throw him into the world of gargantua and pantagruel or something like that something mm. fantasy like so that his delusions have a basis in reality right yeah what you know what effect would that have is he just now another character or he, you know, is con- in control of the narrative? Well, he he's... he's in the control of I would imagine he would be in the control of every narrative just because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, would he actually see giants or would they be something else? Like what happens if he can actual, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to I just want it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> just want it. Are there other like fantasy elements to Gargantua and Pantagruel, or is it just you know they're giants? Yeah, there is, but it's usually around like a gigantic sort of theme or no. I mean, like I guess I would say I don't know if there's like wizards or like any like kind of magical stuff. It, it all it all basically comes back to size, kind of. Even okay. though it's like fantasy based, it's like oh yeah, like Gargantua like peed on the town and then it flooded the whole country. You know, like it's very sort of. Uh, Maybe maybe Rabelais had like isn't there there's like some sort of a psychological disease where you don't understand like the size of things maybe he like oh. had, it's possible that he had that affliction <laughs> among yeah. many others hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's a good one I would say uh, like a really cool mix would be um, so the the eternal uh, you know, you know how we talk about how Murakami is like basically like the narrator of all his books is like exactly the same. Yeah. So that like you know, recently single, thin, interested in cooking, but never really, <laughs> t- but never really talks to anybody or does like you know no friends or whatever. Recently separated person. That eternal Murakami narrator thrown into. Uh, what ideal book would they be thrown into? I guess I'll pose it as a question first. Hmm. I I would like to see something where they're not, you know, walking like ass backwards into success or you know <laughs> magical awesomeness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe something that's, a little more realistic. Yeah, that's always what it is. Sort of like as the story develops, it's like, and then the most convenient things happen to me, which also happens to be strange. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, what's the opposite of that? Like something like some uh, Dickens, throw him into a Dickens novel and it had right. just be a bleak kind of yeah tragedy <laughs> like after guy, tragedy yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh well, I guess I'm not able to handle this. I kept checking the door <laughs> and there's no one that shows up and fixes things for me. Right. 
No, uh, can... Ex Machina. <laughs> or in a time before they could listen to music and cook. Right. Oh, yeah, that's that's also good. Like a Murakami <laughs> period piece where he can't be like, and then I played some Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my next one is uh, take take Marvin the Paranoid Android and put him into some sort of Victorian novel, like maybe a George Eliot or a Thomas Hardy, just for some very uh, strange comic relief. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Marvin the like Paranoid some... Android is from is from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's, you know, super sarcastic, depressed. Uh-huh. Very funny character. Like, I was imagining, you know, some, maybe some character in the... Uh, let's say middle March goes, I took a quote from it. Like that by desiring what is perfectly good, even when we don't quite know what it is and cannot do what we would, we are part of the divine power against evil, widening the skirts of light and making the struggle with darkness narrower. And then, you know, Marvin would chime in unprovoked, like saying some (laughs) shit like, well, the first 10 million years were the worst. And the second 10 million, (laughs) they were the worst too. The third 10 million, I didn't enjoy at all. After that, I went into a bit of a decline. (laughs) <laughs> yeah they're just like i'm smarter than you 38 million times smarter than you exactly i think he would you know i don't know i think maybe he would fall into the category of like cheeky you know head butler at the at the at the abbey <laughs> yeah i guess he is sort of an archetype but as an android <laughs> <laughs> as an android yeah uh, I only have one more, which is... Um... Me too. Oh, really? What's your last one? Uh, no, you go ahead. Oh, uh, mine is... Well... I... Do yours first. Do yours first. Okay. I'm probably going <laughs> to edit that out because I have to formulate mine. Okay. I have to formulate stage two of mine, so do yours first. <laughs> okay, I got, I got one more here. It's... Uh... It's stupid, but take Master Chief from the Halo video from game Halo. series, yep, yep. which is not cheating because there's novelizations of the Halo lore, I'm pretty exactly. sure. Exactly. <laughs> See? And you throw Master Chief into basically any war about, any book about war. So Bridge Over the River Kwai, uh, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, Catch-22, mm-hmm. all, I, you know, I bet things go a little different. When you have a, like, super soldier. Super soldier, yeah. Bridge over the river, cry. It's just like, there are no problems. I just crossed the bridge. I guess I would say, okay, here's my last one. My last one is sort of... Exactly. I'm always reticent to to touch on Proust. (laughs) Um, But basically, Proust himself, like, the narrator that he portrays himself as, which is, like extremely sort of neurotic and picking apart every single moment of life, like in slow motion to the point where only like a few things seem to have happened in life, Mm -hmm. throw him into that like same narration and style, but throw him into like a high action sort of like noir, like thriller, like a Raymond Chandler story, like the big sleep or something where it's like, like a detective story, but it's pulled apart, like in Proustian style, like slow motion. I think that that would be, I would, (laughs) I would definitely read that because I think that he has a way of like, I mean the whole like novel, right. is like in search of lost time or like what, like basically him trying to like figure out like what happened to him, like throughout existence. Mm -hmm. But then that like with an extra layer of like, the detective novel, I think, would be something that I would definitely be interested in. That'd be cool. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe through this conversation of fan fiction, like, that's what, like, I'm trying to, like, become. You know how we were talking before, the whole Austin Cleon thing of, like, write what you, or, like, create what, what you, you want to read. What you want to read, yeah. Yeah. So I just came, I copyright 2019 <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the Proustian detective novel. Okay. Nice. Get to work after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll lock myself in one room. All right. So, yeah, fan fiction. Uh, throw us your most random ideas or what you throw us random ideas but I would also love links to people who are like cuz that's one of those things where uh, you know, sometimes one of the easiest things about a reading journey is like 
I personally feel like I don't take too many risks in my reading journey. Like it's like go from like one classic to the next or like this author, this major author was influenced by this author. So I keep going backwards in time or forward or whatever. But I would love to hear from people if there's like, no, like this is like a thing written by an amateur or like a fan fiction thing that is like amazing. I would love, I I want that too. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be, I'd be interested in that. So if there's anybody out there who has stuff like that, please share it. Yeah, definitely share it. Um, okay, so I think I'm going first this week. Uh, That's right, episode 39, odd number. Yeah, let's kick it off. So the author the author I'm covering today, uh, I'm going to type his his very common-sounding name into YouTube and just see what comes up. It, you know, it's got to be something related to his work, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. So the author uh, is the author is John Williams. <laughs> yes, uh, you got it. Uh, the lesser known John Williams. Right. I was gonna say I don't even know which John Williams you're talking about. I don't think I do anyway. So I'm talking about the John Williams. I think John Edward Williams, who mm-hmm. wrote uh, the 1966 novel Stoner. Right. Right. Okay. Which, Are you doing Stoner? Yes, it has uh, okay. no, nothing to do with weed. It's not right. It's, it's just his name. And I know this is the this is one of those books where it's like you got to read it because everyone says it's like a near perfect, and I've never read it, but I'm really glad that you're doing it. Yeah, finally read it. Um, I think I told you before I I read I was I took like a week off vacation, uh, and I I started this book before that. And I wanted to finish it like well on vacation and, and I forgot to bring it. So I had to, <laughs> I read like three quarters of it and then took like a week off in between, mm-hmm. which isn't what I would normally do. Uh, so, yeah, this is a book I've seen on many lists. You know, like you said, you hear about it a lot. I finally kind of decided to tackle it and it really did deliver on most of the promises made you know, by all those strangers on the Internet. <laughs> uh, I just have a quick question. Have you ever actually left a book review? online amazon or otherwise no i have not other than doing shitty book reports every week for almost a year yeah no i don't um i i like so i haven't either and that's like obviously not going to start now just because like what you said this is that's what we do here but anyways the people who do that the people who do leave those nice reviews for us to read and trust Mm -hmm. those are the real heroes um and yeah that's how i kind of heard about this book so Stoner. It's a book that just has a really, really tight focus, and that's just a focus on one man's life, William Stoner, mm-hmm. who has who made maybe three to four choices in his life, like max. <laughs> and to to me, what it really boils down to, and its message, and what I've seen other people take away from it as well, is that even you know the modest life has beauty and its own value. And there, you know, there are other things to take away and the book does have some flaws, but I liked it for that reason. And, um, interesting from, from my research, I've seen this book often compared to the remains of the day, which you Mm -hmm. covered before. Yep. In that it sort of examines the simple life of maybe servitude or in this case, teaching. And isn't that what remains of the day was? It was like the life of, uh, or it was like a. Life of Page. an English butler. Yeah, butler. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I could definitely see that kind of parallel there. So it's a really simple plot. You know, William Stoner grows up on a farm in Missouri before, like right in the time before World War I. Um, his dad sends him to college to study agriculture so he can learn how to increase their yield at the, at the farm. Mm-hmm. But then... He takes a freshman level English course and he just, you know, falls in love with the written word. So he's a man after our own hearts. So. Uh, and, we, you know, without <laughs> so without telling his parents, he switches to an English major and, you know, eventually graduates and tells that to tell them, like, oh, I, uh, I didn't do any of this agriculture stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's kind of destined to become a teacher. Like, that's just the the obvious path and that kind of becomes his passion and that's really the first the first choice of his small life like is to pursue english and pursue teaching 
Mm-hmm. And then he gets married to the wrong person and he leads a life of quiet kind of struggles teaching at that same university until his end. And that's really it. You know, as far as a plot, that's as far as like the structure, there's there's an affair in there. There's some educational politics, some smaller or larger tragedies thrown in. But that's really the structure. And the book really the first page, you know, it even opens up saying that, you know, Stoner has died, saying that he's already been almost fully forgotten. You know, he, mm-hmm. he just lived this small life. And it's really hard to describe the style that John Williams writes with. It's it's super efficient, but it's really graceful and it's very impactful. Uh, and so I, I read this very quickly, if you don't include the, the week off in between. Right. And uh, for how for how nuanced, you know, some of the, the language was, there's really nowhere to stumble in it. You know, it is a quickly read book. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed his prose and it kind of it makes me really curious about his other two works because he only published three books, novels in his life, which were Butcher's Crossing uh, this book, Stoner, and then Augustus, which won the National Book Award, I think, in the early 70s. Ooh. So as far as far as the character, William Stoner, he's just a pure educator. He's one of those unflappable kind of stoic professors who are just really dedicated to their chosen subject matter. And, you know, he really needs it. He, he kind of has to cling to this subject matter because, which is English, you know, world language, because the other parts of his life are just not ideal. You know, he kind of meets everything bad that happens in his life with acceptance. And, you know, it's kind of weird because that's some of the reason why bad things happen in his life is because he doesn't react to anything. Mm-hmm. Um and some of it kind of just happens as well. But it's a sort of depressing book for sure, but it, it has brevity in those moments. Like those depressing passages are kind of like ripping Band-Aids off, like they just kind of happen and um, you're kind of swept through without having to focus too much on it. And let me just read this. I want to read this quick section. I don't know if it's a quick section. We'll see. I think it's a couple of pages, which I've titled in my notes, Early 40s Disassociation. So this is him, you know, in the middle of his career, making, after making these suspect choices and kind of settling into routine and, and everything. Right. At last, he went back to his old habit of spending most of his time at his office in Jesse Hall. He told himself that he should be grateful for the chance of reading on his own, free from the pressures of preparing for particular classes, free from the predetermined directions of his learning. He tried to read at random for his own pleasure and indulgence, many of the things that he had been waiting for years to read, but his mind would not be led where he wished it to go. His attention wandered from the pages he held before him, and more and more often he found himself staring dully in front of him at nothing. It was as if from moment to moment his mind were emptied of it, of all it knew, and as if his will were drained of its strength. He felt at times that he was a kind of vegetable, and he longed for something, even pain, to pierce him, to bring him alive. He had come to that moment in his age where there occurred to him, with increasing intensity, a question of such overwhelming simplicity that he had no means to face it. He found himself wondering if his life were worth the living, if it had ever been. It was a question he suspected that came to all men at one time or another. He wondered if it came to them with such impersonal force as it came to him. The question brought with it a sadness, but it was it was a general sadness, which he, he thought had little to do with himself or with his particular fate. He was not even sure that the question sprang from the most immediate and obvious causes, from what his own life had become. It came, he believed, from the accretion of his years, from the density of accident and circumstance, and from what he had come to understand of them. He took a grim and ironic pleasure from the possibility that what little learning he had managed to acquire had led him to this knowledge, that in the long run, all things, even the learning that led that let him know this, were futile and empty, and at last diminished into a nothingness they did not alter. 
Once, late after his evening, evening class, he returned to his office and sat at his desk trying to read. It was winter, and a snow had fallen during the day, so that the out-of-doors was covered with a white softness. The office was overheated. He opened a window beside the desk so that the cool air might come into the close room. He breathed deeply and let his eyes wander over the white floor of the campus. On an impulse, he switched out the light on the desk and sat in the hot darkness of his office. The cold air filled his lungs, and he leaned toward the open window. He heard the silence of the winter night, and it seemed to him that he somehow felt the sounds that were absorbed by the delicate and intricately cellular being of the snow. Nothing moved upon the whiteness. It was a dead scene, which seemed to pull at him, to suck at his consciousness just as it pulled the sound from the air and buried it within a cold white softness. He felt himself pulled outward toward the whiteness, which spread out as far as he could see, and which was a part of the darkness from which it glowed, of the clear and cloudless sky without height or depth. For an instant, he felt himself go out of the body that sat motionless before the window. And as he felt himself slip away, everything, the flat whiteness, the trees, the tall columns, the night, the far stars, seemed incredibly tiny and far away, as if they were dwindling to a nothingness. Then, behind him, a radiator clanked. He moved, and the scene became itself. With a curiously reluctant relief, he again snapped on his desk lamp. He gathered a book and a few papers, went out to the office, walked through the darkened corridors, and let himself out of the wide double doors at the back of Jesse Hall. He walked slowly home, aware of each footstep crunching with muffled loudness in the dry snow. During that year, and especially in the winter months, he found himself returning more and more frequently to such a state of unreality. At will, he seemed able to remove his consciousness from the body that contained it, and he observed himself as if he were an oddly familiar stranger doing the oddly familiar things that he had to do. It was a disassociation that he had never felt before. He knew that he ought to be troubled by it, but he was numb, and he could not convince himself that it mattered. He was 42 years old, and he could see nothing before him that he wished to enjoy and little behind him that he cared to remember. Hmm. That part was nuts when I first read it. I had to go back a few times. Right. I mean, yeah, it sounds like, you know, what's funny about books like this that really sort of affect people, I mean, what is the balance? Like, what you just read is is – you know, it's hard to describe unless you read from it, but it's like it's sort of like this book about nothing that's like incredibly well made, right? Yeah. And that's really what I took away from it the most. Like you know, like I said, there's there's moments of, of increasing to like depressive sadness, but like it's also swept away in beautiful descriptions like of just the freaking snow, like you just said, like mm-hmm. you know, him staring out his window. And um so I guess the way this book was written, I, you know, at least felt myself relating to it in a way where you kind of want to step in and help William Stoner, help him make a change, help him not make the these dumb uh, non-choices, I guess, you know, sit back and let stuff happen to him. And because of that, you really do enjoy like the, there's small moments of happiness in the book. Uh, and, you know, so Stoner's a sympathetic character for sure. But I now I just, I guess, can get into my complaints or my issues with the book is that, you know, the author, he doesn't extend that feeling of sympathy or anything like that to anyone else in Stoner's life. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's kind of a, a common complaint that I saw when I looked, you know, at different reviews is that, like his wife is just portrayed as an evil kind of mentally unstable person. And Stoner mm-hmm. is kind of just a pure victim. Right. And it's, it's not fair, you know, cause it's <laughs> not like he, it's not like Stoner has to be this bystander when anything bad happens, which mm-hmm. is how it's set up. Like he really just cannot deal with anything outside of his studies or he doesn't make an effort to. Right. So the lens of focus is sort of like just treats the main character very preferentially to other characters. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but then there's uh, I mean, it's it's written well enough where you can think about it in another way too. like, you know, maybe he or, you know, he certainly wasn't suited for the life that he chose. And I guess it's just up to you whether you blame him or not for that. Hmm. And I feel like John Williams wants you to not blame him, you know? Right. He's a, he's this passive kind of person. Um, 
But anyways, you know, I thought I thought this book for its prose alone is fantastic. It just seemed like there was some piling on with other characters where they're, you know, just portrayed in, in a strange way. And, you know, even his daughter, who's like written as essentially ruined or like corrupted by the the wife, like and it's not Stoner's fault, even though he's, you know, this professor is so focused on his uh, work and studies and everything. But anyways, you know, issues aside, there aren't many surprises in this book and there aren't I don't think they're meant to be any, you know, Stoner. You you know that Stoner is not going to move a muscle to combat his plight. And like there's only maybe one or two occasions where he really puts his foot down at, at any at anything. Um, mm-hmm. No one's really addressing underlying problems. And if Stoner has a rock in his shoe, he just keeps walking with his his definition of grace and dignity. That sort of thing. Uh, and I want to just read this really quick section about, uh, uh, you know, no, I've, I've read enough. <laughs> <laughs> check, out, <laughs> check out Stoner. Yeah. Uh, there was a section that I found compelling because it kind of shows the perspective uh, because he's a professor during World War One, mm-hmm. and he has friends who are with him and his friends end up enlisting for world war one and he doesn't he stays behind to to teach and he you know he loses a friend this way and then you know people judge him for his decision and there's all sorts of stuff but uh he then there's a section later in the book where he's seeing it happen again with world war ii and it's not like he's in that position anymore but he's seeing students going off to war and it's it's very a very good scene so yeah, uh, Stoner is a really great work. It it tackles the reality that you know some of the elements of your environment you cannot change, and others you can, but usually maybe to the same end. Depends on how you want to look at it. Uh, so I have a really lengthy one star review here from a Goodreads user named David, but I'm gonna paraphrase it a lot because <laughs> he really really went off on it. Really and went I off on Stoner. Yeah, I appreciate the passion, but I disagree with him. So just check out this intro. I was going to start out this review of Stoner by feigning comic incredulity that the former conductor of the Boston Pops wrote a novel about potheads, but that is far, far too obvious and unsatisfying even for the likes of me. Instead, I'm going to confess that I read only half of it, and thereby my ignorance has been properly disclaimed but that this aborted reading filled me with such unmitigated contempt for the author that I plan on mounting every soapbox if soapboxes have been, haven't been technologically obviated by now. From here to the Great Barrier Reef, condemning this plotting, tiresome, amateurish book with an antagonistic <laughs> passion that literature hasn't invoked in me since Cambridge's A Concise History of France. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so basically, this guy is the embodiment of the spirit that you were talking about before, like the people who take to the Internet to, you know, that's that's like the only thing that the Internet does really is like it, you. it's a place it's a place for extreme praise or extreme complaining. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he goes off for like seven more paragraphs about like, you know, there's five hundred and thirty one reviews. 459 people gave it four stars or higher. This turd. Only 11 people were courageous enough to call a spade a spade. Like, I don't know. He, he just really went off on it. But <laughs> um, I liked it. Mm, That's my review. Nice. Pretty, pretty good. Has some flaws, but pretty good. Nice. Yeah, it's just one of those books that you hear about where usually when people read it, they're like, oh, it's just so simple. It's so perfect. It's so good. So I'm glad. I'm glad I know a little bit more about it now. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if it's my turn this week, then uh, this week for me is going to be sort of like possibly on the shorter side. But every time I say that, I end up blabbing more than I thought I would. (laughs) So um, I guess that's a way to say that my book this week is very short. Um, Let me go. Let me go again, Mark style and pose a question before I just blurt out the title and the author. Um, have you ever engaged with the self-help genre or do you have sort of like my my experience with the self-help genre is one of avoidance? 
sort of like when you're scanning the bookstore store and then there's just like the whole sh- shelf of self-help i'm just kind of just like i'm have never even really like looked at it so have you ever read like something that you consider to be a self-help book i have one author who i trust in, in self-help and the weird thing is his books were published a uh, hundred plus years ago like in that early 1900s, but they, they work really well. And uh, I'm not going to reveal who that is because I will cover it later. <laughs> I was going to say, spill the beans, man. Don't be so mysterious, but I guess that's, that's fair game. So, you know, Mark's personal messiah from the turn of the 20th century, we will cover in a later, <laughs> in a later podcast. Um, but so, like I said, like I would normally not really dig into uh, like the self-help genre, mainly because I think that it has sort of like the stain of popularized. I think it's really been sort of like affected by stuff like, you know, Chicken Soup for the Soul and like Oprah Book Club, like, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know. There's something about the marketing of self-help that is like sort of like, like the re- secret yeah the secret. reeks reeks of yeah. like desperation or something like that but obviously you know that i would the most the book self-help book that i'm most likely to pick up would probably be titled how proust can change your life would you agree that i might pick that book up yeah i <laughs> I, I think so <laughs> so my book this week is how proust can change your life by alain de bon de Botton, which i think it might just be alan de Botton, which is uh just to go over him a little bit he's sort of like a he's like a british intellectual celebrity so he's swiss born but li- has like lived in the uk all of his life and like the development of his careers in the uk he has been referenced as uh, Mark from uh, from Peep Show is a fan of his. <laughs> um, if that, if that gives some context to any uh, Peep Show fans out there. Um, but basically, Alan de Botton is like a guy who's, in my view, after, you know, kind of cozying up to his career a little bit, I would call him, he's like definitely an intellectual. He's like, but he's sort of like a pseudo intellectual. Like I understand people's sort of criticisms of him because he is a, he's basically like an everyday philosopher. So books like How Proust Can Change Your Life, he has also written, you know, like The Consolations of Philosophy or The Architecture of Happiness or like stuff like that, where I think part of the titling of each of his books is sort of like a tongue in cheek kind of thing. Like the architecture of happiness is actually about um, architecture. So it's like sort of like, (laughs) so like, it's like, Oh, the architecture of happiness. Like that sounds like some sort of thing that like that, you know, a cheesy like doctor would make up, but it's like, his he always has like a way of like if that's what the book is going to be called then it's going to be not only about happiness but literally also about architecture <laughs> and like the way that it affects us and stuff like that so obviously i would be tempted to um you know how proust can change your life is his first nonfiction book he wrote a fiction book called essays in love which i think was like a collection of essays about like romance basically in the 90s but it does say here on wikipedia it's a novel which i'm a little bit confused about but his not his first nonfiction book is how proust can change your life and i would say that i have even though uh in the early days of shitty book reports we sort of agreed that we would only bring mostly positive reactions i have positive things to say about this book but i also have negative things to say about it um i think i like can side with some people who like criticisms of it even says here on wikipedia like the reception of his writings is like a lot of people will praise his books for kind of making literature philosophy and art more accessible to wider audiences which i think is definitely like a goal of his but then negative reviews which i could also agree with would tend to say that he sort of like states the obvious or from Wikipedia quote has characterized some of his books as pompous and lacking in focus. So I think that he does kind of come from an angle of like, I'm an everyday philosopher and you shall understand me because my book is in Barnes and Noble and, you know, Walter (laughs) books or like whatever, like that kind of thing. But, um, you know, to dive into the actual book that I covered, how Proust can change your life. I think that there are like, 
I can kind of here's a quote from the New York Times that's right on the back of the book, which it says delightfully original, as well as being criticism, biography, literary history and a reader's guide to Proust's masterpiece. How Proust can change your life is a self-help book in the deepest sense of the term. I would agree with everything there except the last sentence. I don't think that this is actually a self-help book. And I think that maybe I'm going on the um, you know how like. Last week when you were talking about Austin Kleon's book, Steal Your Steal Like an Artist, you were saying that there were like people out there who were maybe trying to look for it to be more than it was, like a literal guide. Yeah. Kind yeah. of thing. This to me, like I feel like a lot of the reviews call it like a self-help book, and it's really not like of that genre. It's actually more of sort of like a a sort of amateur's introduction to the biography of Proust and like who he was basically with a little bit more kind of like dash of funniness brought in because there was like as I read this book and again this is like a good book because I read it I think I read it like in a day and a half or whatever it's only you know it's 200 pages but spaced appropriately for being a self-help book that you like pick up off the shelf and everything and uh, there's like some pictures and stuff and um it just goes over the but it, it basically is an introduction to who Proust is. So if you didn't know who he was, like bar none, then maybe this book would be more interesting. But for me, I was like, okay, like yeah, we all know who Proust is. And there's also like there's. <laughs> oh, I got a question then. Yeah. How, what percentage would you say, or what percentage of people would you say read this book and then read Proust? I would say that there's probably a lot of people out here who read the, who this would be their introduction to who Proust is. Okay. And do you think it does a good enough job to get them to read Proust like pretty shortly after? I want to see some mm, metrics. No, no. Oh, I would say okay. I would say it would not do a good job because in this book, but like, okay, so for me, somebody who is like a Proust devotee, I have some like pretty bizarre like like bordering upon religious beliefs about Proust. I think that he was probably not like he was tragically human, but in some ways emotionally and other ways was like beyond human. Um, but uh, De Botton in this book is very like kind of makes fun of him a lot because he was obviously like a ridiculous person. Like he was super hypochondriac, like spent a good third of his life, like in one room in his apartment, only going out yeah, to like horizontal. Social, yeah. Like basically laying in bed and then wearing full on like dinner coats to, to like dinner. Cause he was like always freezing cold and like was a weirdo. So he makes like a lot of fun of him, which when I like, so obviously that irked me a little bit, like basically like the person who I worship most, this guy is like kind of poking fun at him because that's like a fun thing to do. Um, but I will say that they are, I did gain some interesting sort of insights. As somebody who was like already versed in who Proust was, I found a lot of the – none of the revelations were very interesting, but I did find some of his perspectives. You know, he's still a writer. Like this guy, Alain de Botton, is still like a, like a good writer and somebody that like that's their professional career. So he did succinctly say a few things about Proust's legacy and stuff that I'll quote from the book which was really good. Something that I had never heard about before, which he brought to light and also his trademark, like tongue in cheek way was Proust's father was a doctor, which I already knew, but he, <laughs> he bought, he brought some stuff into this book that was like pretty funny. Cause Proust's da dad, his father was a doctor in the way that like before the, the, like the 20th century, you were a doctor. So like he wrote books about like, how teenage girls should stand straight while they're sewing so that they will be, you know, healthy or what, you know, like he wrote <laughs> things that were like absolutely ridiculous. And it's funny, he, you know, he kind of puts it into, pers into a kind of modern perspective now because this book was published in uh, 1997, but still it was, it's like sort of hilarious, like, Proust's father saw him as sort of like a layabout who's like dedicating his life to literature. And then you kind of dive into what his dad was like, re like writing. And it's like, okay, swing your arms and balance on one foot to be a healthy young woman. You know, like, like yeah. <laughs> you're a bullshitter just as much as anybody else. Like you're not like some sort of like, you know, hoity toity, but it's also hilarious because as we, as many people will know, you know, Proust, his family was like rich and so is his dad. So it's like kind of hilarious back then, like how you could like maintain a career by just being like a horrible moron. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But um, 
you know, some good quotes from the book that I think, you know, De Baton needs to have credit for is like, so there's like this one quick sentence where he's talking about Proust's work. Um, I'll read like a short paragraph here. Uh, our mind will likely be a radar newly attuned to pick up certain objects floating through consciousness. The effect will be like bringing a radio into a room that we had thought silent and realizing that the silence only existed at a particular frequency and that all along we are in fact sharing the room with waves of sound coming in from a Ukrainian station or the nighttime chatter of a minicab firm. Our attention can be drawn to the shades of the sky, to the changeability of a face, to the hypocrisy of a friend, or to the submerged sadness about a situation which we had previously not even known we could feel sad about. The book will have sensitized us, stimulating our dormant antennae by evidence of its own developed sensitivity, which I think that's like a perfect sort of like analogy, like for someone who like, cause people read Proust all the time and they're like, okay, this book is stupid. Nothing happens. And he doesn't get out of bed for 30 pages. Like it's just <laughs> dumb. But really I think that, that he is kind of like in a way that is more articulate than I can explain and he's putting it down on paper, basically saying that sentence is perfect, that the book will sensitize you and stimulate your dormant antennae um, by evidence of its own sensitivity. So basically, like you're reading Proust and then as you go along through life, you're sort of thinking like, wow, like every moment can actually be picked apart like way more than you think it can, because Proust was like this ultra sensitive, emotionally intelligent person. Um, and. You know, there's lots of little snippets in here that are sort of, if you are a fan of Proust's work, then you can just zip through this book in one day, think that it's kind of stupid, but then also kind of reflect about how great it is. But that's the thing that I would kind of counter argue a lot of the reviews. This is like a very popular book that sold millions of copies as like a self-help book. And I'm like, you know, just read Proust if you want to get, you know. This isn't oh, this okay. book is this book is not going to change your life as much as actually reading Proust. It just reinforces like that sort of thing that should come naturally when you read Proust. Correct. Yeah. OK. So he's kind of like bringing to the forefront, like read this hundred page thing about me talking about how great Proust is. But really, if you just dive in and give it a chance, then your way of life will kind of lock into this. Uh, I think I found okay. some negative. I found some negative reviews online that also mentioned that this is possibly like some sort of like I think this book gets like included into some curriculums like in the UK and stuff like that, um, which I think is kind of funny because and that's again um why I'm saying, you know, I think that this book sometimes might be people's introduction to Proust, which is like sort of sad because your introduction to Proust should be, you know, a punctuation within a literary journey, not like somebody being like, read this guy and then Alan de Botton just telling you like stupid shit about him. Um, but does yeah. it go into, does it go into like his history with reading the book? Is it something he's read like? you know, a dozen times or like, did he space it out in his life? Like, no, no, like not really. Mark Garfunkel like, did. Okay. No, it's like, it doesn't really, there's nothing really about Baton himself. It's just like, it's sort of like a surface level bio biographical review of Proust. And then each like chapter is again in his like cheeky style. Like the chapter names are like how to open your eyes or how to suffer successfully. And he's being like, sort of, cheeky as they would say okay in the, cheeky in the, bastard. he's being sort of cheeky but at the same time i don't think it like fully accomplishes like when i read when i picked this up i was like oh yeah i'm ready for like this to be like a companion thing for me kind of like being even more aware of proust but i think that like you said this is just brought to the forefront in simple sentences what naturally happens when you read proust anyway um but yeah lots of little like kind of cool quotes in here like i underlined one um, you know, th there's this cool scene where he's talking about how uh, there were various novels at the turn of the century that would be inspired by uh, obituaries. Like I think, like one of uh, one of Zola's novels was um, he was he basically made the plot off of like seeing like an obituary in a newspaper column. And Proust felt the same way about some of like he he would read like tragic stories in the newspaper and then reflect for hours about like how those few sentences actually sort of sum up a tragedy, which obviously at this point in history, we're like hyper exposed to that, where it's like when you read Internet news, pretty much every single like 
tiny article about like a shooting or a heart attack or, you know, whatever, weather, blah, 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 anything could be turned into like a full kind of novel. And, uh, you know, like Bataan basically makes the point like, okay, you know, Anna Karenina could be just two sentences. It could be a young mother threw herself under a train and died in Russia after domestic problems. Like that would be in a newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. or or going back to the a book that I've covered on the podcast, Madame Bovary, a young mother took arsenic and died in a French provincial town after domestic problems. <laughs> you know, like everything, everything could be like kind of summed up, but it's the author that really pulls it apart. And uh, I like this thing that Bataan said about Proust. He said, Proust's assertion that the greatness of works of art has nothing to do with the apparent quality of their subject matter and everything to do with the subsequent treatment of that matter. So it's basically the idea that, like, you, you know, people pull themselves apart trying to think of, like, what is my short story going to be about or what is my, like, thing going to, like, what's going to happen or what's going to thing. And the kind of idea, the basic idea behind Proust is that, dunking a coffee i mean dunking a cookie into a cup of tea can be the nexus of the entire universe you know <laughs> yeah so like don't like over like like it's kind of it's almost like a reaction like when you read about writing for film or tv or like you know screenplays and stuff you have to see something on screen so like a lot of the time elements of story are always like you have to have a but then or an if or but or then something happened and it's like it's sort of a reaction to that actually saying like, no, if you turn the lens like deeper, the page can go, you know, much deeper than the image kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, interesting revelations when you're reading this. But at the same time, I wouldn't give Alain de, Alain de Botton too much credit because I, I kind of also side with his detractors saying like, OK, dude, like it's not that deep and you're not that cool. And, you know, like <laughs> like a lot of like the like it's like it's also sort of media quotes too, like the the thing the on the front cover, New York Times book review, a self-help manual for the intelligent person, witty, funny and tonic. And, you know, that's like sort of like an ego boast to you as a reader, like, oh, yes, like how Proust can change my life. I'm going to read this self-help book that's also witty and funny and about literature. Um, But it's just not as effective as it could be, is basically what I'm saying. So they should they should sell it in a bundle with Swan's Way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Like, yeah, you're actually like right on the money. Like it should be like shrink wrapped like around Swan's Way and (laughs) probably like 20 pages in. It should have like warnings on it being like, why don't you just go read some proofs to like understand or (laughs) understand the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Um, So I have a one star book review just to wrap up. I think I I think my prediction came true. I thought it was going to be short. And then I talked for 20 minutes, which is, you know, typical style. Um, (laughs) So Sarah on Goodreads rated it one star, and uh, she said, I picked this book up because I thought it would be humorous. It only made me annoyed. I must admit I didn't finish it. Proust now seems more of a dweeb than he ever was before, so I regret picking up this book. I would agree with you, Sarah. Alain de Botton made too much fun of Proust, and it's like he's sort of like, oh, he was this weird guy from the 20th century. Like, isn't he so weird how he acted? And it's like, okay, let's like kind of concentrate on the – a brilliant way that he righted everything. Um, yeah. And there's just like a lot of one star reviews to basically people being like this book basically is like a blaspheme against Proust. It doesn't really concentrate on his actual writing. It just like makes fun of him. Um, and yeah, that's it. Yeah. Cool. Go read some so, Proust. Yeah. How, <laughs> if you're considering picking up how Proust can change your life, then just go read Proust instead and it will change your life. There you go. To, to be <laughs> yeah, covered. Yeah, the title. Yeah, to be covered. And, yeah, it actually is. All you need is the title. This should just be like a card next to a Proust. Or just get rid of the – chop off a few words. Proust, Proust can change your life. Exactly. Proust can change your life. End of book. Uh, so that's about it. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, everyone, this has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, pretty much everywhere podcasts are not sold because this podcast is 100% free. And uh, you can email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter where we're most active, sbrthepodcast. And uh, we'll see you next time. See ya.